The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in August 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we welcome Terry Teachout. Hi, Terry. Thanks for asking me on. Um, when we first contacted you, you said we should refer to your Wikipedia uh, <laughs> entry for your, for your bio. So let me just read from the, the entry. You're a critic, a biographer, and a blogger. You are the drama critic of the Wall Street Journal, the music critic of Commentary, the author of Sightings, a column about the arts in America that appears biweekly in the Saturday Wall Street Journal. You blog at About Last Night, and you've written about the arts for many other magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times and National Review. I'm doing the, the abridged version of your <laughs> Wikipedia entry. You've been a jazz bassist in the past and a musician. Uh, you're the author of books, including All in the Dances, A Brief Life of Do- George Balanchine, a Terry Teachout reader. The Skeptic, A Life of H.L. Mencken, City Limits, Memories of a Small Town Boy. You've written liner notes for many CDs. I'm just fascinated by, by the list of artists you've written about uh, for their CDs. Everybody from Karen Allison and Jean Bertoncini, Ruby Braff, Ellis Larkin, Diana Krall, Joe Moody, Marion McPartland, many others. Currently, you're working on Hotter Than That, a biography of Louis Armstrong, and writing a libretto for the letter and opera. We have a lot to talk about. Let's uh, start off with how you got to where you are today at the Wall Street Journal as a drama critic from being a boy in Missouri. How, how did you get the job at the Journal? Uh, that's a long trip, so I'll just tell you about <laughs> the last part of it. Okay. It was totally unexpected. I got a call from Paul Chagot, uh, the editorial page editor of the Journal and the person to whom arts coverage reports at the Journal. And I've been writing for the Journal for the years and for years. And he said, would you come down, have lunch with us. We'd like to talk to you about our arts coverage. And he blindsided me. Midway through lunch, he said, we'd like to start a drama column. Would you like to write it? And when was this? What, what, what four years ago. Uh-huh. I've been doing it for a little over four years mm-hmm. now. And I was totally thrown. I'd written about theater, obviously, uh, but I had never written about it as a week-to-week working critic. And I said... Well, let's try it. Let's try it as an experiment. So we shook hands on it. It started out biweekly, very quickly became weekly, and it ceased to be an experiment a long time ago. You said something very interesting, if I picked up correctly. You were contacted by Paul Jigot, who is the editorial page editor yeah. at the Journal, so that the critics, you're, obviously it's not a conventional newspaper, it's not the features department per se, but the editorial page seems a far way from from the critics' pages. Yeah, it's just, the, it's just the way the Journal is structured. Opinion hmm. coverage... What we do is considered a form of opinion coverage, which obviously it is, and so that's how we reported the paper. Huh. And does that affect your writing style or your opinions any differently than if you were, say, at the New York Times or the New York Post or some other newspaper? I don't think so. I think I write the same for everybody. Uh-huh. Uh, I, you make adjustments in your style depending on who you're writing for. I used to write foreign policy editorials for the New York Daily News, mm-hmm. and you know I didn't use seven-syllable words in those, but uh, uh, basically I write the same for everybody. Be, the reason I asked about that is, of course, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal is famously a conservative uh, perspective on the news. Was that in any way something that was discussed in your coming to write theater criticism regularly, that there was in some way going to be a conservative slant? No. Hmm. No. I mean, it didn't come up. It's uh, They knew my work. Uh, they liked my work. They thought that I would do a good job. And it really was as simple as that. And, you know, if you read me from week to week, you know that I don't write very much about political theater. I'm not really interested in it. I mean, sometimes it's salient. It comes up. You have to write about stuff happens uh, when it opens. Uh, There are shows that you do. And there are shows that I've loved that had strong political content to them. Heather Raffo's Nine Parts of Desire is one of the best best things I've seen in the last four years. But generally speaking, uh, it, it simply doesn't figure in what I do. So when you got the gig, as you say, you weren't writing about theater regularly. Was there a process to further immerse yourself in theater? Well, I was reasonably immersed in it already for for several years before I started this job I wrote a monthly New York letter so to speak for the Washington Post uh, we amusingly called it Second City and uh, I wrote about all the performing arts in that including theater and I've been involved in in theater 
in one way or another all my life. But I had certainly spent more time involved in lyric theater, uh, in in opera, in ballet, modern dance, as as a critic than I had in writing about straight plays and musical comedy. So it was more just a question of directing the spotlight in a different direction uh, than anything else. Uh, and obviously, there were things I didn't know when I started, uh, but I do have a theater background going back to junior high school. So... I'll give you I'll give you a very specific example. I had never seen a play by Brian Friel before I became the Wall Street Journal's drama critic. Now I think he's maybe the greatest living playwright. So that was a pretty steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. When you write a, a column on theater, on a play or a musical, do you, do you differ in any way in your style, your approach to criticism than you do, say, for a music piece or another another one of the arts? No. To me, all the arts... They're just like one big art. They're different branches of the same art. They're all trying, in my mind, to do the same thing, which is to be beautiful and to express certain kinds of things about human nature. Uh, some arts do it verbally. Some arts do it nonverbally. Uh, but they are all cousins under the skin. So it's just a matter of, of bringing the appropriate vocabulary, the appropriate knowledge set to it. But I have to tell you that... that to write about a play for me is an experience not unlike writing about a symphony or a ballet or a novel. And what do you see as the role of, of the critic? Mediator between the artists, between their experience and and the audience who's reading it. Uh, to some extent, an educator. Uh, I'm writing for an educated general audience at the journal. Uh, it's an upmarket audience, but it's not an audience of theater buffs per se. And I'm trying... Well, to put it this way, every week I'm trying to send them a report on what I think is interesting about theater in New York, but also in the entire United States. And uh, critical judgment is is implied in that. But in a way, you know, the most powerful of all critical statements is the decision to write about something in the first place, especially when, as I do, you write about regional theater. And, of course, your readership is not just in New York. It's all over not only the United States but the world as That's well. right. We are a national newspaper. This is why, after I'd been at the Journal for about a year, we decided to branch out from New York theater. We actually focus grouped the Journal's arts coverage about three years ago. And uh, our the participants in the panels were all saying the same thing. They thought it was too New York-centric. Well, that makes sense. We are a national newspaper. You know, I come from the small town of Missouri. That's where I was born. There's an honor box for the journal in the parking lot of our post office. Mm-hmm. The journal is everywhere. So my my editor, Eric Gibson, uh, called me up and said, you know, we have found this out about what the readers are interested in. Would you be interested in hitting the road? And I said, hand me the credit card. <laughs> now, what's fascinating about that, and, and you've even written about it in the reverse, is at the time at which the journal, more so, frankly, than any other major paper, was saying, go out, see what there is around the country, there's a tendency now around the country for arts criticism to be lessened yes. in newspapers. And you wrote about this a few weeks ago in your column in That's the journal. Right. How are you are you finding that balance? Do you think you're you're sort of holding the fort? for for keeping the idea of of regional theater alive around the country well as far as theater goes i am the fort i'm i'm the only person so far as i know who is making a systematic attempt to cover regional theater in the united states in the interstices of covering new york theater we cover all broadway openings that's my brief at the journal when i'm not covering a broadway opening i can do whatever i want and again, the balance of what you cover, because you have basically that half page every week, but what you choose, how much space you choose to give to each show is, again, a critical choice. Correct. Um, in terms of the regional work, as you say, you've, you've been going to theater, but in the past four years, how have you approached deciding what to see, when to travel, where to travel, what companies to look at? Well, I'll be perfectly frank with you. When the journal first said to me, would you like to do regional theater, I didn't know anything about regional theater. I knew that it existed. And since I don't come from New York, I remembered what it was like to go see theater in Kansas City. But basically, regional theater I only knew in terms of productions that had transferred to New York. 
So here I was with an assignment, no real sense of how to go about it. And the first thing I did was I drew up a list of the the regional Tony winners. I thought, okay, that's a good place to we start. We know that list. Yeah. And I fanned out from that. Uh, I would go to a show, and if I was especially impressed by a director or an actor, I'd look at their bio. Where had they worked before? That goes down on the list. So month after month, year after year, I'm building up a list which now contains, here's the magic number, about 250 professional theater companies in the United States that are possible places for me to go or to which I've already gone. That means I look at their offerings every year, I know what they're doing, and I make a decision about whether to go see them and what to go see. Um, How I do it, um, some of them are repeats. I go to Chicago three or four times a year. Chicago is, after New York, the great center of American theater. I go to Boston a couple of times a year, Washington two or three times, Baltimore twice. Um, I try to group my visits. I, I won't normally go to a city simply to see one show and come back. Uh, I might do it if there were some pressing importance that the show had. But generally speaking, what I'm trying to do is to go out to Chicago for a week or 10 days and hit three or four things that I think are worth seeing. Or to go to a cluster of cities that I can reach fairly easily. I went to Portland and Seattle on the same trip last fall. So as you already commented that you discovered Brian Friel, and we'll come back to to specific authors, but what have you discovered about seeing theater regionally that may be different than what your expectations were since you say you didn't <laughs> didn't really know much about it? I'll tell you what I discovered, that it's just as good out there as it is here in New York. Not always, of course. but and And the greatest challenge for the critic who does what I do is to apply what I call appropriate standards. But I am applying exactly the same standard to the Guthrie in Minneapolis or the Court Theater in Chicago or Actor Shakespeare in Boston or Center Stage in Baltimore that I apply when I see a production here in New York. There is no difference to the yardstick that I apply. And I didn't realize that that was going to be true. I knew, obviously, there were productions that had come to New York from out of town, uh, Light in the Piazza from Intiman and Seattle, to take one example, that were obviously as good as anything we got here. Uh, uh, John Doyle Sweeney Todd uh, came to us from Ohio. Uh, Actually, it was the company that came from Ohio. Right. But, But I didn't know that theater of the first quality was everywhere you looked. And now I do know that. I know that better than anybody else outside the regional theater business because I see more of it than anybody else outside the regional theater business. And it's not quite a dartboard. Uh, There is no professional theater, so far as I know, in Hawaii or Mississippi, and there's not much in certain of the plain states. But, you know, if you want to see a lot of good theater, you can see it pretty much no matter where you live in this country. Well, let's talk now about the discoveries artistically In now that you, you certainly have the reason to be seeing so much more theater than you were. You commented that Friel was, was a discovery for you. What other writers or actors or directors were real discoveries for you? I didn't know how good Alan Eggburn was. Um, oddly enough, the first Broadway show I ever saw I came to New York on a field trip when I was a sophomore in college, and I saw one installment of The Norman Conquests, the original New York run of it. Um, Between that and the time that I came to the journal, I didn't see any other Egbert plays. Um, And now he gets done quite a bit in the regions, and I know how good he is. I know that he is, in fact, not the Neil Simon of England, but an entirely serious artist whose medium is usually, but not always, comedy. Um, And they get that better in regional theater than they do out here. We don't get that many Eggburn productions in New York. I mean, we had, uh, obviously, intimate exchanges uh, at Brits Off-Broadway and Private Fears in Public Places two years ago, I think it was. And uh, the revival of a third person singular, but that's all that's happened in New York since I've been here. And that's that's an important thing that I found out. I'll tell you something else I find out. Uh, if you go to regional productions, you get to see productions of new plays other than the ones you've already seen. 
most New Yorkers haven't had a chance, for example, to see two different productions of a play like Lynn Nottage's Intimate Apparel. I have. That's the test, you know. I mean, when you first see a play, this large cloud of information is coming at you. And the play and the production and the acting are all mixed up in the same experience. It's when you start to see the way that different people, different companies approach it, uh, that you begin to tease these strands out and realize what the play is, where the essence of it is. And uh, that that has helped me to understand why some things are good that I didn't know how good they were and uh, or that I suspected that maybe I was being fooled by a really good production. Um, I've seen so many good actors out there uh, that, you know, I can't even begin to tell you. Uh, you think that the acting in New York is going to be better and obviously you're not seeing the the biggest biggest stars anywhere but in New York but boy you see people in regional productions and you think you know why on earth am i not seeing this person in New York and the answer is cuz they can make a living out there i think it was on your blog not long ago you wrote about the role of enthusiasm for mm-hmm. a critic and it's it's already pretty apparent in talking to you but i'm i'm wondering if you can talk about that again because there's certainly you know, the conventional wisdom is that all critics are, you know, grumpy, cranky. It was, you know, the, the original production was better kind of people. And and what is what do you see your role as being? The role it, of a critic is to is to communicate his enthusiasm if he feels it. If he's never feeling enthusiasm, he's probably in the wrong business and should consider retiring or taking up some other line of work. Now, I don't think I'm indiscriminate. Uh, I've I've dropped quite a few bombs on quite a few shows in the last four years. But when I feel enthusiasm in a show, whether I'm supposed to or not, whether other people think the show is good or not, my first task is to embody it in a piece I write and thereby express it to the people who are reading it. And how much should we know about you? I was struck as preparing for this. You certainly give a good bit of information on, now we'll mention it again, you're at the Wikipedia bio. You know, we know a bit more about you and the blog in particular. You're constantly revealing right down to a, mentioning a dream you had about Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Um, well, when you write a blog every day, uh, no matter how private you are, and I draw some very strict lines in the blog about what I reveal and don't reveal about myself, but you are revealing a lot about yourself. I'm not an autobiographer in the, the reflexive sense of the word, but you know, I mean, a critic, a critic is a sort of a very low kind of artist, and all artists draw on, on their life, their inner life, and their, their experiential life in writing what they write. Um, I don't think you have to know anything about me to derive from my writings a sense of what I'm like. I write like I talk, for example, and I don't conceal my opinions. I'm paid to give my opinions. Um, but if you want facts about me, they're all over the place. Uh, the Wikipedia entry, terryteachout.com is, is the blog. Uh, you can find out a lot about me if you want to. <laughs> you mentioned a moment ago, talking about Alan Akeborn in particular, that Many other areas of the country get more of his work than we do in New York, and that's probably true of other other playwrights as well. Why do you think that is, that other areas produce these shows that they're not produced in New York? Well, in Egbert's case, it's because they're comedies, and they're extremely well managed in terms of what it takes to put them on. Uh, there's nothing unrealistic about the the production requirements of a play like Relatively Speaking, which I saw a few weeks ago at Westport Country Playhouse, for example, or uh, uh, Private Fears in Public Places. Um, And so you can do them. They're funny. They work. They're absolutely infallible as long as you observe the basic rule of farce, which is don't act as though you know that what you're doing is funny. Um, So they're sort of a natural thing for regional theaters that do have to pay the rent and put butts on seats uh, to slot into their... their, uh, their bills. I mean, the same way that Neil Simon is, except that Egbert is a different kind of artist. Um, when you asked a little earlier, and I wasn't dodging it, but we just didn't quite engage with it, what it is that makes me decide whether or not to go see a company, the Podunk Repertory Company, let us say. And there's one basic requirement, which is that the Podunk Repertory Company has to be a professional company. I don't do community theater. I don't do dinner theater. I mean, there are, there are some basic things I don't do. 
And beyond that, every year around February, I post an item on my blog called So You Want to Get Reviewed, in which I explain what it is that causes me to consider coming to see your company. Uh, and I mention those things, and I also talk about how I'm looking for companies that do usually a minimum of four productions a year, uh, not serious in a po-faced way. Uh, if you're doing Brecht, that'll get my attention. But if you're doing Eggburn, that'll get my attention, too. Uh, if you are only doing plays like uh, The Foreigner or Tuesdays with Maury, The Great Cash Cows, I'm probably not going to come see you. Uh, if you're doing one of those to make a little money, that's perfectly forgivable. Um, <laughs> I take comedy as seriously as I take tragedy. Uh, I'm not sure that all critics feel this way. Uh, but I, I obviously, when I'm going to a company that I've never seen... I'm probably not going to come to see a play by somebody of whom I've never heard. That's just not cost effective. Uh, so I'm going to be looking at it, what plays, what revivals you choose to do. What What is your feeling about repertory? What is that mix of works? Are you doing the kind of works that make me think, oh, this is interesting, or oh, this is a play I've never seen on stage, or oh, I've never gotten to review this play in the last four years since I started writing for the journal. Then the flag goes up and I start thinking about maybe I'll come and see you. Um, I have a private list of plays that I will come and see pretty much no matter where they're being done. Um, I don't advertise that one. <laughs> we, we seem to have bifurcated the theater scene between Broadway, which we've mentioned in passing, and regional theater, which we've been talking about a lot. But there's also the issue of off and off off-Broadway right. theater. I present all theater in my drama column on a plane of equality. There is not a Broadway section. Uh, I pair things depending on what I saw in the last couple of weeks and how I think they can fit together to make a nice piece. But I give as much space to an off-Broadway show or a regional show as I do to a Broadway show. I just think that's right. Uh, Broadway is only a part of American theater. Somebody said, you know, Broadway is just another region. And that's right. It's the region with the most money. Uh, and sometimes mir miracles happen on Broadway. Uh, but just as often, non-miracles happen. <laughs> what, what miracles have you seen lately, whether it be Broadway or elsewhere in the country? Well, what's the, the well, I mean, we all, we all saw the same miracles here in New York last year. We saw The Coast of Utopia, which is one of the most important theatrical experiences that has taken place in my whole life. Um, we saw, uh, I saw a wonderful, speaking of Stoppard, a wonderful revival of Arcadia at the Court Theater in Chicago. A really, really good Rosencrantz and Guildenstern at uh, the Studio Theater in Washington, D.C. Um, I would say, generally speaking, that my my take on theater in New York over the past year is more or less in the same place as, as most critics is, except I hated Xanadu. <laughs> gave me hives. Uh, I'm the critic who didn't like Xanadu. <laughs> I'm the critic who thought that The Wedding Singer was better than Xanadu. Are there other shows that you've been at on the other end of them where you've loved it and most of your contemporaries, other critics, have not? Well, The Wedding Singer was one of them, although I didn't love it in the sense that I loved Arcadia, say, uh -huh. but I thought that it was an awfully good show. Um, I don't really read other critics that much. I look at the websites, the aggregators that that tell me, they, they show you the headlines so I know what people thought. And every once in a while, I'll be curious and I'll look up a review. And I go out of my way to read what John Simon writes, uh, for example. But I don't go out of my way as a general policy to read other reviews. Um, I just don't. Uh, and I also don't hang out with very many critics. There are a couple of drama critics who are, in fact, friends of mine. Uh, but um, uh, most of my friends come from other fields. Well, is that just because you're not interested or you don't want to be biased or influenced by them? No. Uh, remember that I came to this late. Mm -hmm. uh, and so my my circle of acquaintances is not especially theatrical. I know, I, I know some professional theater people, but they're people I knew before I started writing about theater for the journal. And they're not people that I've ever had any occasion to write about. Uh, that the journal does expect of me. Uh, one does not write about one's friends. And generally speaking, I think that's a very good rule. Um, as far as the critics go, uh, you know, 
life's too short to spend a lot of time talking to critics, you know, <laughs> <laughs> including me. <laughs> We've spoken about the blog, and I want to ask a question very simply. Why blog? It's the most stimulating thing that's happened to me in my writing life as an adult. Um, it's tremendously exciting to be able to write without mediation, without editing, to publish when you want, to write about whatever you want at whatever length you want. Um, I do write about all the arts, and it took a very long time for me to reach the point where I could write about more than one art form for publications. They don't trust you. Their instinct is not to believe that you know about more than one thing. Uh, the blog allows me to write about all different kinds of things, to juxtapose them in ways that I think are suggestive and useful. I use the blog as a kind of public notebook from which I not infrequently develop longer pieces later. I'm throwing ideas out. I'm experimenting with them. And I have, uh, I now have two co-bloggers, uh, Carrie Fry uh, joined our blog this week, uh, along with Laura Demansky, our girl in Chicago. If you read the blog, that's who she is. Well, and we should say, how do people find the blog? Uh, TerryTeachout.com will take them there. Uh, there's another address, but it's a complicated one. You don't need to know that one. Just go to TerryTeachout.com and bang, you're there. Um, so even though I don't get paid to write this blog and never have, uh, it more than repays me in these other ways. And, of course, it's also a tool of self-publicity. Uh, when I have a book coming out, I talk about it on the blog. Uh, if you go to the blog, you can, if you wish, find out about the books that I've written. You can follow links to other print media pieces that I've written. It's just a, a good organizing tool for allowing people to find out whatever it is that they want to know about me within reason and to write to me. Well, I read it. every piece of mail I get at the blog. How interactive and how 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 much do you respond? It's always, it always seems like, you know, if you get a lot of responses, you can spend all your time in, in dialogue with, with your readers. And you have to be disciplined about that. I But I do answer every uh, letter that is not that doesn't start off dear sir you cur or or isn't an advertisement you know for a penis enlarger or something like that uh, i answer them all sometimes in a sentence or two uh, we don't have comments on the blog because i don't want to take the time to moderate them and also because there are issues of libel that that haven't been worked out in case law yet for blog comments uh, but if you send me an email and it gets through the spam filter uh, you'll get an answer. It may take a couple of weeks, but you'll get an answer. And, and how, how long have you been doing the blog? Almost exactly the same length of time I've been the journal's drama critic. Uh -huh. I started it uh, four years ago this summer. And uh, why did you get started on it? I had wanted to do a blog for two or three years before that. I was interested in blogging before the invention of the platforms that allow people to start a blog easily. Um, I got interested in blogging actually when I first saw Andrew Sullivan's blog, which is about politics. And I thought to myself, you could do this on the arts. At that point, nobody was. And when I started blogging four years ago, there were, as far as I know, only about a half dozen dedicated arts blogs at that point and no theater blogs. Uh, since that time, uh, art blogging has mushroomed. As you can tell, if you go to my blog and look at the blog roll, you'll see... I think about 100 uh, mm. selected arts blogs in all areas, including theater. Uh, I like to think that I might have some, I might deserve some credit for that. There are bloggers who have told me that when I started doing it, being a, a, a print media writer of some reputation about the arts, they thought, well, gee, this must be serious. So maybe I'll start one. Um, so post hoc, you know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I know some people have told me that that was their experience. But we now have a situation where it is possible to read dozens of blogs about the arts in combination or individual arts full of tremendously stimulating commentary, some of it by people who are well-known print media critics like Alex Ross of The New Yorker, but much of it by people who do not write for the print media, people who are amateurs only in the sense that they're not getting paid, but they're just as good as we are. I find that stimulating, too. But you're reading that, and you'd said you don't pay attention to a lot of your other the other critics right. that are out there. Right. So why read the blogs and not the critics? They're more interesting, <laughs> by and large, with exceptions. And no, I won't name names. But by and large, I find, and I'm now not 
just talking about drama criticism. I'm talking about criticism in general. I find art blogging more stimulating in general than what gets written about the arts in the print media and especially in newspapers. And on your recent blogs, in more than one place, you'll, you'll make comments like, I've just returned from a trip. I've got a pile of mail on the table. I have to go through snail mail. <laughs> so I'll get around to telling you about my trip in a couple of days. Obviously, you're doing this as a labor of love. Does it ever become just a labor for you? Every once in a while. But then, you know, I snap back to the default position once I catch up and realize how much fun it is. Uh, it's also, bear in mind, a habit. I've been doing it five days a week for four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I suppose that there's an, an addiction model at work here. And we should point out that it includes theater, but it's not just theater. It comes no, many things. It is about all the arts, just as I'm interested in all the arts. And every Friday I post what we call the drama column teaser, where I... I your listeners may not know that the Wall Street Journal's online journal is a subscription-only site. So I don't publish my entire reviews, but I publish excerpts from them so you'll know what I thought of the show. Um, and beyond that, uh, I write about whatever I'm interested in at the moment I sit down at the computer. But you also will sometimes post a complete review at the end of the run of the show when the show is closing and yeah, post a review. Sometimes. I mean, just don't do I don't do it when the review is new because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you want the to journal pays me money to do this. And, right. and we have about a million subscribers to the online journal. It is the only successful subscription model newspaper website, I think, in the world. Uh, so I'm not about to undermine that, even in my small way. You write in different media about so many different aspects of the arts, and I'm wondering how much you've found that those other assignments, whether you give them to yourself or whether you're assigned them, does it inform your theater criticism? Do oh, you find the gosh, overlap? yes. Gosh, yes. Because remember what theater is. Theater is a synoptic art form that takes in the whole world and the full range of artistic and, in fact, human possibility. Um, I mean, that's most obvious in the case of musical comedy, which embodies music and dance and and you know, everything there is, but theater theater is a synthesis of the arts. And so my experience of all the arts must, should inform uh, my theater criticism, as well as my experience of life, because theater is not an abstract art form. Uh, it's, it's about people's lives, uh, and sometimes it's political, and then that takes in an, another branch of experience. Um, but you know, I'll admit this. You want to know what I regard as my greatest weakness as a theater critic? I know nothing about costumes. I don't know anything about clothes. So you're never going to read anything interesting about costumes in my theater reviews. On the other hand, you may read something interesting about the incidental music in a production uh, of of a play that you might not read in somebody else's review. Because, in fact, because you're a musician. Because I'm, I'm a trained musician. Uh, I think that I write more penetratingly about the dance element in musical comedy than than some uh, other critics might because I'm a very experienced dance critic who has spent a very long time looking at dance of all kinds. And that also means that I bring a wider frame of experience. Uh, remember, uh, George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins both choreographed for Broadway. A great many uh, distinguished choreographers have done that. Uh, Broadway choreography is choreography. Often it's pretty rudimentary, but when it's not, when something interesting is going on up there, uh, the light goes on in my head, and I try to convey that enthusiasm as well. Well, being a musician yourself and having an interest in choreography, who do you see as the best uh, composers working nowadays? Lyricist as well, best Adam Gettle. Sweeps the table. He is well. I write many of the headlines for my journal reviews, and uh, when we uh, reviewed *Light in the Piazza*, the headline I wrote, which we used, was Sondheim's *Air*. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not like Sondheim, obviously, but he he proceeds in that direction, which I think is is the necessary direction for serious musical comedy. Now, I don't just like that. Remember, I'm the guy who liked The Wedding Singer. I like all kinds of experiences. But to the extent that that musical comedy, and I don't know why we call it musical comedy because it's not always funny, but that is the term that we apply to it, to the extent that it can make a, a very serious uh, expression through theater of how we feel about life, uh, Sondheim and after him, Adam Gettle are the people who have, are doing this, I think, better than anybody else. Right and, uh, and how do you define the word better? I mean, what, what is it about them that makes them better than anybody else? Well, for one thing, they're shooting higher. 
they are trying to do far more than a show like Legally Blonde does. Uh, uh, and they also have... Well, this is one of my favorite stories about Louis Armstrong. I'm writing a biography of him. And uh, uh, somebody asked him which of two trumpeters he liked better, uh, Bobby Hackett or, or Billy Butterfield. And he said, Bobby, he's got more ingredients. <laughs> well... Uh, Stephen Sondheim has more ingredients and Adam Gettle has more ingredients just in terms of of the equipment that they bring to writing music. Sondheim, remember, studied with Milton Babbitt as well as with Oscar Hammerstein. Uh, There's just more there in those shows. They're trying to do more. And now I'm not a Sondheim buff. I'm not one of these extremists who thinks that everything he did is perfect and and I won't go to Podunk Rep to see their production of Assassins, but uh, there really is nobody I admire more in the last quarter century in that field. Hmm. Anybody else on your list? Uh, Michael John Lacusa. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really talented, very prolific, and we can't always keep up with everything he's up to. And he's... I've said the same thing about Sondheim. I'm not sure that the Broadway stage is where he ought to be working simply because he's trying to do things that don't really fit into the expectations of Broadway audiences, and he hasn't really had any success on Broadway. And Sondheim's ex- success on Broadway is extremely problematic, uh, as you as you well know. But, um, gosh, just in terms of, of the quality and, and fascination that these works exert, I, I take him very seriously, too. And we talked briefly about uh, Brian Friel and about Alan Akeborn. Any other playwrights that you would put on top of your list? Kenneth Lonergan who finally has written a new play, uh, The Starry Messenger, which will be opening in what I think of as the second semester of the New York season. Um, He is, I think, potentially our greatest, America's greatest playwright, but he hasn't exercised that skill in the theater as much as as we thought he would after This Is Our Youth and and, uh, The Waverly Gallery. Lobby Hero is the last thing he wrote, which I think was 2001, except for a, a short thing or two. He wrote a very, very great movie script, You Can Count on Me, and then he also wrote The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle and uh, analyzed this. But now he's given us a play, and uh, uh, I that is, of everything that's happening in the season to come, that's the thing that, that excites me the most. Um, Tom Stoppard, I think it should be obvious from the conversation so far uh, that I think very highly of him. And I am very impressed with Lynn Nottage. Very impressed. Uh, I've only seen three of her plays. Uh, and, you know, one could be an accident, two is suggestive, three tells you that there's something real going on. Uh, there's definitely something real going on with Lynn Nottage. You were speaking before about the fact that as a musician, you have particular insight into musical aspects of a show, and as a longtime dance critic, you have insight into the dance aspects, certainly, of musicals. So I'm very curious about the fact that now you are moving into the creative role yourself. You're doing the libretto for a new opera? That's right. I'm biting the bullet. And is that your first yes. time doing this? So, first of all, how did you come to do that? How did someone say let's go to this critic and see if he would write a libretto. And secondly, what are you learning from that process? Well, I'll tell you the story briefly. Um, I have a neighbor who is a well-known composer, Paul Moravec. He won the Pulitzer Prize for music, I guess it was two years ago. You lose track of these things, but it was a couple of years ago. For a Shakespeare piece, interestingly enough, a piece of chamber music called Tempest Fantasy. Uh, I was one of the first critics to recognize Paul's talents, and we have since become friends, and we live two blocks from each other. We had been talking for a number of years about the possibility of writing an opera. But you don't just write an opera, unless you're a cockeyed optimist to a degree that I'm not, uh, because nobody's going to pay you for it. And uh, at that point, when we first started talking about this, nobody was answering our calls. And then Paul won the Pulitzer Prize, and I became the Wall Street Journal drama critic. And, you know, suddenly... Your stock went up. Yeah, yeah, we're a growth stock all of a sudden. So uh, Paul met the uh, artistic director of Santa Fe Opera, Richard Gaddis, um, and said, you know, I'm interested in doing an opera. And Gaddis said, as as people say at cocktail parties, well, you know, send me some of your music. And Paul sent him a CD of Tempest Fantasy. 
Well, that hit the jackpot, actually, and Gaddis became very interested. And um, so Paul comes back to me and says, well, you know, here we've got an opera to write. What is it going to be? <laughs> and there we were, caught with our pants down. Uh, our first thought, our immediate thought, was to do Moby Dick, which has never been successfully done as a, any operatic treatment of it. And I actually wrote the libretto for the first act and sketched it out before we found out that meter wasn't running yet, that Santa Fe had just commissioned a new production of Billy Budd, so that knocked that out of the box. And so, a Hermit and Melville season yeah, just didn't seem to be in the cards. No, no with two all-male casts. Or, mm-hmm. So here we are. Uh, we've got an opera company interested in us. We don't know what to do. I was up in Connecticut um, uh hiding out from the world, and I get an email from Paul, a four-word email, a very momentous thing. This arrived about a year ago. It just said, what about Somerset Mom? And I began screaming and running around the room, and about 30 seconds later, I emailed him back saying, do you know a short story called The Letter? So he went out and read it, and we both knew that we had an idea for an opera. Uh, for those of your reader, your listeners who don't know about this, uh, the letter is a very famous story by Somerset Mom, which he turned into a play in 1927, and then it was filmed twice by Hollywood. The second time by William Wyler in 1940. Uh, Betty Davis is the star of that movie, and the screenplay was by Howard Koch, who is best known to history for having written uh, the radio play of the War of the Worlds and collaborating on Casablanca. Uh, the 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 screenplay for the 1940 version of the letter is very close to mom's play. It's about 80% the same. So we sat down and, well, we talked about this very extensively. And then I wrote what in Hollywood would be called a treatment. And we sent it to Santa Fe. And they agreed very quickly to commission us to write this opera based on the treatment. That was, they gave us the, the green light in November. We started negotiating with the mom estate. Um, that took several months. Uh, no reason to go into it. It just takes a long time to get these things worked out. Uh, we announced uh, in May, Santa Fe announced in May that, that the letter would, would be commissioned by them. Uh, we have a premiere date of August 1, 2009. And uh, I can tell you who the director is uh, because he announced it himself. It's Jonathan Kent who directed the Broadway revival of Faith Healer, Brian Friel's Faith Healer, two seasons ago with Ray Fiennes, but who now has a second career as an opera director of of great distinction and interest. Uh, Paul and I met with him in February or March. We had our first sit-down discussion about that. Um, So that's that's how an opera, that's one of the ways that an opera gets off the stocks. Um... And in terms, it's, it would seem there's still a lot of work to be done. You've got some time to go, yet to go. But what are you learning? Are you learning things about the creative process from the inside now that give you oh, a yes. different perspective? Well, okay, I'll tell you another one of my dread secrets. I wrote a play once. It was awful. I showed it to a director I knew who must forever remain nameless, who told me that it was terrible. And I still give him good reviews <laughs> because he was right. But this was before I became a drama critic. And that taught me an enormous amount about what a play is. I mean, it's not just the thing that you experience, but how you make a play work. Even writing a bad play teaches you more than anything you could possibly do. Did that director say why it was bad or yeah. simply you – know, so, so they really went yeah, he was through very, it with he was, you. Well, I mean, he didn't go through it in detail. Right. But, I mean, he said to me two or three things and – I think he confirmed what I already suspected. Um, and then after that experience, I spent, I have spent four years in the theater two or three times a week, mostly looking at plays, some good, some bad. And I assure you, paying attention. So in a way, the process is going the other way because because I have had this concentrated period of time thinking about and trying to articulate what works and what doesn't work about plays. I'm bringing this experience to to the problem of adapting Somerset Maugham's uh, The Letter for the Lyric Theater. Uh, and I have now just, actually, this was two weeks ago, I finished writing uh, The Libretto. It is eight scenes long. Uh, we expect the opera to run for 90 minutes with no intermission. 
um, it's in a pretty advanced state. Paul will probably compress it some as he sets it. He's set three scenes so far. Um, but now that I've done this, it's as though I, it's as though I've been involved in a self-seminar teaching me, summing up everything that I've learned about theater in the last three or four years from watching so much of it. And it's a very particular kind of theater. This is not an experimental opera. Uh, the letter is a well-made play. And we are trying to write an opera that's 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 like an opera, that you will go to it and you will say, wow, things happen in this that are in the same universe of experience as Carmen or as a Verismo opera. Um, so I'm not applying the same kind of knowledge to this that, that I would have acquired from watching, you know, a play by Tom Stoppard or somebody like that or, an ex- or a genuinely experimental play. But I am trying to apply what I've learned about what works in a play. Because remember, opera is a primary color medium. It's all about the most basic of emotions. And this is a very basic plot. Uh, You know, the soprano kills the tenor, and then she gets killed by the baritone. That's about as basic as you can get. Um, So I'm trying to create a structure that works on the stage, a vessel shaped like an opera into which Paul can pour his music because he's never written an opera before. And we've talked for several years and thought a lot about what works and what doesn't work in opera. We want to write an opera that works, an opera that other companies will want to produce once they see or hear the Santa Fe production. That's what we're trying to do. Now, you are a drama critic and a music critic. When uh, this show opens on August 1st, 2009, the next day, August 2nd, the reviews come out, will you read them and what will be the influence on you, do you think, now that you're on the other side of the, the fence, so to speak? Normally, I don't read reviews of my work. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've been very careful about not reading reviews of my books uh, because I work in the sausage factory. I know about critics. Um, <laughs> there are critics in theater, in opera, in every field whose work I do take very seriously, them I'll read. And if this opera is well-received and we get a chance to do another one, I hope I'll learn from what they have to say. Uh, uh, We mentioned at the beginning the books that you've uh, written, Life of George Balanchine and one about uh, H.L. Mencken, a new one, the one about Louis Armstrong, uh, hotter than that. Louis Armstrong, probably one of the the greatest musicians who ever lived, at least uh, on on this planet. Yeah. Uh, What drew you to Louis Armstrong in particular? Why why did you decide to write that biography? Well, it's interesting. I... uh, after I spent 10 years writing my biography of H.L. Mencken and swore that I would never, ever write another biography. Mm-hmm. And I had visited the Armstrong House, which is in Queens. It is his house. It's been turned into a house museum, uh, restored to its original condition, for a piece that I wrote for the New York Times a few years ago. And the curator of the Armstrong archives, Michael Cogswell, asked me casually, have you ever thought about writing an Armstrong biography? And I said, oh, my God, no. I'm in the middle of this monstrous labor working on Mencken. And then I was, I had just, it was the first night of my Mencken book tour, and I was in a hotel room in Washington, uh, having spent the entire day shuttling from one radio station to another, and I was lying on the bed, quivering with exhaustion. And it really was like Lewis or God or somebody reached down and tapped me on the forehead and said, what about a Louis Armstrong biography? And I knew in that moment that I wanted to do this. I'd thought a lot about him. Um, there's an enormous amount of newly available research material since the last Armstrong biography. There's never been a primary source biography of Armstrong written by a trained musician. Uh, I've now written a long biography and a short biography, and I know what a biography is. I think I don't know how to write one. Um, and he's just great company, you know. He's one of these rare figures that the more you learn about him, the more you like him. And you already liked him going in. Uh, there's no dark figure in his carpet. Uh, he was, I think, a, a good man and a great man. And a nice man who wasn't insipid, as nice people sometimes are. So it's it's fun. It's delightful to spend a whole day uh, in the salt mines uh, trying to establish facts about Louis Armstrong. You wrote about Balanchine, of course, uh, with a theater background. Any other theater people interest you? I'm not thinking ahead to the next book. Uh-huh. I've got to get Armstrong in the bag and uh, and also the letter, obviously. I've got, for the next two years, I'm going to be preoccupied with 
getting an opera on stage. Uh, but who knows? I mean, maybe it will come to me with the same suddenness that, that the idea for the Armstrong book did. I certainly would be open to it. As we uh, wrap up, wh- what is your, your outlook on theater currently, both in New York and around the country in general? Do you think it's it's going going well? Do you think there are problems with it? How, how would you see it uh, having evolved over the time you've been a critic for four years, but also since you started going to shows? I mean, you talked about decades ago going to your first show. Well... I mean, obviously, the the great evolution in American theater over the last quarter century is is the consolidation and significance of regional theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really very proud to be involved with covering it in the way that I do. That's very important to me. Um, Broadway, I think, reciprocally has grown less interesting. Uh, it is no longer, uh, for the most part, a place where new plays open, new plays of any seriousness. And when I first started covering theater that first year, that bothered me. And now it doesn't bother me anymore. You know, Broadway just is what it is. It's the theme park. If you want to see a play, go somewhere else. If you want to see an expensive musical or or the transfer of a British show or something like that, Broadway, great, fine. But Broadway is not the be-all and end-all of American theater. And if I have a mission at the Wall Street Journal, it's to let people know that every week, that Broadway and theater are not the same thing. Broadway is just one of the places where you can have a theatrical experience. So it doesn't bother me what's happened to Broadway. It it just is what it is. Well, Terry, on that note, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal, not theater critic, but drama critic, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. My pleasure entirely. Thanks, Terry. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that you can read more of Terry's work at terryteachout.com, and you can find all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing at our website, online, on demand, for free, from www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.